Good morning. Just in case my sermon title confused anybody, I don't have anything at all to say about Italian cars. (laughs) Fiat lux is a Latin phrase that simply means let there be light. And that's what I want to talk about today, which is only fitting because this is Epiphany Sunday. Yesterday, January 6th, the day after the 12 days of Christmas, is the day set aside for the Feast of the Epiphany. It is a day that is focused on the baptism of Jesus, which is, uh, which is as we shall see, a textbook definition of an epiphany. Now, as you may know, an epiphany is an unexpected revelation, a sudden illumination, somewhat akin to turning the light on in a dark room. Now, I realize that the word epiphany may sound like a perfume from Estee Lauder or Ralph Lauren. Actually, that thought aroused my suspicions. So like all good researchers, I Googled it. Unbelievable. Have you ever heard of the Epiphany Perfume Company of Gatlinburg, Tennessee? (laughs) Evidently, we now live in a world where any theological word or concept is fair game for making a buck. I can see it now. It's a nice fragrance. Why, I'm wearing entire sanctification. It's by Hugo Boss. It's the scent of perfection. (laughs) As the Apostle Paul might put it, God forbid. So today, when I say epiphany, I am talking about the liturgical season in the Christian year and not something that you might see uh, for sale on the home shopping network along with Vegematics, costume jewelry, and Chia Pets. The Christian church has been blessed with four Gospels, each unique in its own way. And nowhere is that more evident than in how they begin. Matthew begins at genealogy.com, where he shows us the lineage of Jesus through Joseph. Luke begins by telling us the unlikely story of a couple of senior citizens who suddenly start shopping at Babies R Us. John takes us to graduate school and blows our minds with the eternal logos. Mark, Mark wastes no time with details of this nature. Mark gets right to the point, and to him, the point is all about light. It's all about epiphany. If, if writing a gospel is, is something like going swimming in the lake, then uh, Matthew and Luke wade slowly into the water, giving us the details of what we now know as the Christmas story. John avoids the water entirely, parasailing over the lake to get the big picture. Mark is that one who runs full speed down the dock, yelling, Wahoo, and does a cannonball into the deep water. There's no subtleties for Mark. 
No teasers. His, his opening words give, us, give it all away. The beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Mark literally begins with a spoiler alert. Actually, Mark reflects the church's interest. As you may be aware, church, uh, Christmas wasn't broadly celebrated in the church till the 3rd or 4th centuries, while Epiphany was observed much earlier. Like Mark, the early church clearly saw that the heart of Jesus' mission to this earth has its true beginnings right here with his baptism. And Mark's gospel epitomizes this emphasis. It is generally supposed that Mark wrote his gospel primarily for the Christians in Rome. Roman folk weren't much interested in stories about babies. They were living in the midst of a conquering empire, the likes of which the world had never seen. This was a bottom-line kind of culture that had little patience for anything but results. And so Mark accommodates them by getting right to the point, the beginning of the gospel. That word gospel, which Mark cites here, is something that would have been familiar to Romans. An evangel, as we might put it in English, referred to a special day or an event associated with the emperor. For Mark, his evangel, his good news, is not a birth, it is a baptism. Mark wants his readers to grasp that Jesus' public coming out at his baptism is an event that will radically bring about a new state of affairs for all people. You see that Mark immediately links his, this good news to the words of the great prophet Isaiah. And Isaiah writes that this gospel will have its genesis through a voice speaking for God in the wilderness. Israel's prophetic tradition long believed that the final salvation of God would be unveiled in the wilderness. William Lane points out that the word wilderness is the primary unifying term of the opening verses of this gospel. I think that's significant because so much of what we call Old Testament salvation history takes place in the wilderness, out in the proverbial middle of nowhere. Abram hears God's voice. Jacob has a heavenly vision. Moses sees a burning bush. Israel wanders for 40 years. Isaiah hears the still, small voice of God, and so on. Over and over again, God reveals himself to his people in the wilderness. But beyond that, there's a strong correlation in Scripture between repentance and the wilderness. If you read the Old Testament, you will see that Israel does its best and perhaps most significant repentance in the wilderness. It is in the wilderness that Israel is offered true sonship, where God promises to lead his people to their destiny. It is no surprise, then, that John the Baptist appears in the wilderness, breaking a period of over 300 years of prophetic silence. Light has suddenly returned to a darkened Israel. The scene Mark describes here at the Jordan must have resembled quite a religious sideshow for the curious. 
and by far the strangest character in this circus was the ringmaster himself, John the Baptizer. John is clearly described here as a man of the wilderness. His leather clothing recalls a characteristic feature of the prophet Elijah, another man of the wilderness. John's message echoes Isaiah and centers around the imperative for people to ready themselves for a new baptizer, one who will baptize them with the Holy Spirit. And so John calls Israel back into the wilderness to repent and to be baptized, to get them ready for the coming epiphany of God. They need to acknowledge their sin and their rebellion. They need to express their desire to begin anew as God's servant. But there is a huge problem. Israel has never been able to accomplish repentance of this nature and of this depth. And so this time, the work of repentance will not be done by the wayward people of that chosen nation. This time, all of the burden, all of the responsibility for Israel's destiny will be placed on another, a single human person, who appears suddenly at the River Jordan. In Exodus 19, when Israel was being constituted, As Yahweh's people, God told Moses that he would not come down to the people until they were properly consecrated. Here at the River Jordan, Jesus' baptism accomplishes the necessary consecration as through his baptism he embodies a vicarious confession of sin on behalf of many. Jesus does what Israel has been unable to do. He walks into the water in full submission to the Father's will. And the cosmic significance of this event is underscored by the heavens being torn, by the descent of the Spirit, and by the approving voice from heaven declaring, You are my Son, whom I love with you. I am well pleased. Jesus comes to John as the true Israelite whose repentance is perfect. He is the beloved son, but he comes to the wilderness because sonship must be reaffirmed in the wilderness. It is hardly coincidence that following his baptism, Jesus goes even further into the wilderness where his sonship will be tested and confirmed in stark contrast to Israel's many wilderness failures. At River Jordan, God has switched on the light. Now, this story from Mark 1 is the lectionary reading for Epiphany Sunday. Earlier, we heard the Old Testament reading from Genesis 1, giving the account of how the Lord God brought order and purpose to the creation. And it all began with light. We take light so much for granted that it's hard for us to imagine a time when it was non-existent. This past August, Nancy and I found ourselves, by pure coincidence, in southeastern Nebraska on the day of the solar eclipse. That was ground zero for for that event, and but because it was it was a rather cloudy day, there really wasn't all that much to see. But around 1 p.m., 
the light began to dissipate until it was completely dark. It was surreal. I didn't know what to do or think. I felt like maybe we should be gnashing our teeth, but I don't really know what that means. (laughs) So we just sat there, stunned at the total absence of light. Thankfully, this lasted only a few minutes. And once again, our world was bathed in light. But I'll never forget how portentous, how threatening that encompassing darkness was. Tellingly, in Genesis 1, God's first words into the darkness and chaos of creation, Fiat Lux, let there be light. It is an epiphany. Light is the necessary first step in bringing order out of chaos. And here in Mark's gospel, God's words through John the baptizer breaks the void of over 300 years of prophetic silence. And thus begins the divine work of bringing order and shalom to the chaos of a dark and sinful world. Fiat lux, an epiphany. You are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. God has once again turned on the light. If Genesis 1 is the first epiphany, then Mark here tells us of the ultimate Epiphany, of how Emmanuel, God with us, came to light up our world with the knowledge of himself. And how could it be otherwise? In his first epistle, John says that our God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. It occurs to me that just like the birth of Jesus, which takes place in the relative anonymity of Bethlehem's stable, The baptism and launching of Jesus' public ministry, the beginning of God's ultimate revelation, takes place not in Jerusalem, not in the place of optimum exposure and public notice, but out in the wilderness. Apparently, God's movements in history are unpretentious, intended to be found by those who deliberately seek them and which are easily overlooked or even ignored by those whose attention is so easily captured by the trinkets and the distractions and the artificial lights of human doings. I'll never forget on my first trip to Australia 25 years ago, our family, we we were in central Queensland, and we were being shown the sights of that area. And it was dark now. We were headed back home, and I was riding in the back seat when, for some reason, I tilted my head backwards and opened my eyes and looked through the rear-view window and saw, for the first time, the stars of the Southern Hemisphere. I, I was stunned. It looked to me like there were millions of them. I couldn't believe it. But my ability to see them was largely owing to the absence of artificial light. There was nothing to distract. There was nothing to impede the vision. You perhaps have heard the expression, (coughs) going off the grid. It describes people who move out of the, the wilderness to live without the benefit of electricity. 
It would seem that God has a history of going off the grid. It seems pretty evident to me when I read scripture and think about the faith journeys of so many, including my own, that it is a preferred method of God to get us figuratively off the grid so that we might actually see the light that he has sent into this world. The wilderness is where things happen. And what is the incarnation other than the story of Jesus, the Son of God, going way off the grid so that you and I might have access to this saving light? The season of Epiphany is a time for us to open our eyes and to refocus on the true significance of Christ coming into our world. For all of its beauty, for all of its sentiment, the Christmas story has a way of leaving Jesus in a manger or in a house somewhere where he can be left alone until the story repeats itself the following year. And honestly, many people prefer that Jesus to the one who walks into the wilderness of Judea and willingly takes upon himself the sins of his people. But Mark will not even allow us that choice. To his readers, he presents only the good news of Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. And it is in consequence of that astounding good news that we can then actually hear the scriptures. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. The light has shined in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The darkness has not understood it. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Jesus said, I have come into the world as a light, so that no one who believes in me should stay in darkness. The apostle said, for God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. And in the Revelation, John proclaims the ultimate destiny of this light that was lit on the shores of the Jordan. He says, I did not see a temple in this city because God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On that day, on no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. Fiat lux, let there be light. We are rightly fascinated and enthralled with light. Moth-like, we are drawn to its source. We play with matches as children. As adults, we spend huge amounts of money on all things associated with light. We are mesmerized by it. Only partly whimsical is my suspicion that many of us would trade every Christmas present we ever received or even wished for, for a lightsaber. (laughs) To hold in our hands the power to dispel the forces of darkness. That is the ultimate human fantasy. 
I heard a guy say he wanted to live long enough to see the Buffalo Bills win a Super Bowl. I want to live long enough to have a lightsaber. I think my chances are better. Come on, Elon Musk. Forget rocket ships and driverless cars. How hard could this be? Get cracking, man. But in my more rational moments, I have to admit that perhaps this human desire to rule over the darkness is just one more piece of evidence revealing our delusions about saving ourselves. The darkness that has to be overcome is not anything that can be defeated by Jedi ingenuity and resources. Only the gracious self-giving of our God is sufficient for such a task. Fiat Luke's. Let there be light. On that same first ever trip down under to Australia, I was preaching at a church in the suburbs of Melbourne, and this congregation had been helping and supporting a small community of Laotian Christians. And one of the things they did was help them procure a hymnal in their language. And that Sunday, the Laotian Christians came to show off their new hymnal and to sing for the church. And they gathered up front and opened their hymnals and started singing. And I don't speak a word of Laotian, but the tune gave it away. They were singing, the light of the world is Jesus. The good news of God's redeeming light coming to us in the person of his son transcends all and any language and cultural barrier. The light of the world really is Jesus. As I implied earlier, it's no coincidence that Christmas is so associated with light. We, we hang lights on our houses, on evergreen trees, or pricey facsimiles. We light candles in Advent wreaths, and at Christmas Eve services, we go to things called festivals of light. There is an undeniable association of light with good news. In my hometown of Tucson, Arizona, there is a subdivision known as Winter Haven. And evidently, and it's been that way, my family moved there in 1960, and it was like this, and still continues today. There's some agreement that you enter into that you will go all out in decorating your house for Christmas. And it is a Tucson tradition to drive through Winter Haven at Christmas time. The year before my children got married, we all went to Tucson for Christmas. And I decided to take them through Winter Haven to show them the lights. The color commentary that came from the back seat of the car involved the repetitive use of words like tacky, <laughs> cheesy, oh my gosh, and accompanying groans. Mostly they were right. This thing had gotten way out of control. It was like Clark W. Griswold on steroids. <laughs> and the fact is that the, all of those houses together couldn't produce a light show anywhere near as glorious as a mediocre Arizona sunset. But there is something deep within the human spirit that insists on bringing light into darkness. We think we're really doing something lighting up the night, but it is a poor, poor imitation 
of what God has done in Jesus Christ. John Calvin said, Now if all the wisdom of the world were gathered into one, not a spark of true light would be found in that huge heap. On the contrary, it would be a formless chaos, for it belongs to Christ alone to deliver us from darkness. God brought light into into being at the beginning of it all by simply speaking a word. And then one day on a riverbank out in the middle of nowhere, God himself ensured that all of us might have sufficient light to find our way back to Father's house by submitting himself to baptism in the muddy waters of the Jordan. So what is the point of Epiphany? I think it is to reassure us that the light has come into the world and the darkness has not, indeed will not, overcome it. That's quite a claim to make these days. Particularly for some of you. I suspect that some of you are surrounded by darkness at the moment in ways that you cannot adequately articulate. Circumstances conspire to tempt you to think that darkness is your destiny. You may glance anxiously into the new year and it looks empty and void, filled with darkness. But as the Spirit of God hovered above the waters of chaos and brought order in the beginning, even so Jesus Christ has come to this world to illuminate your path and to guide you into all truth. To that person today who battles the encroaching darkness, whether it be the uncertainties of aging or disease, the tenuous and fragile nature of relationships, or just the stifling despair of hopelessness. Epiphany means that the Lord is your light and your salvation. Of whom shall you be afraid? I'll freely admit that I don't like the dark. It's not that I'm afraid of it, it's more like I'm offended by it. I mourn each year the passing of daylight savings time. I confess that I, I celebrate winter solstice almost as much as I do Christmas because I know the days are getting longer. The summer solstice in the middle of June always fills me with a twinge of sadness because I know the days are going to start getting shorter. There's a clinical definition for this. SAD, Seasonal Affective Disorder, sometimes called winter depression. I admit to having a terminal case. Once when I was pastor here, we had one of those winters that just would not go away. And it was evidently, I was wearing it on my sleeves. And Monday came and Larry Mullen burst into my office and said, get in the car. I said, I'm in the middle of something. He said, get in the car. I knew he wasn't going to take no for an answer. So I put my coat on and went out and got in the car. And he drove me up onto Seymour Street and pulled off and pointed up in a tree and showed me a robin. He said, there. There's hope. The way this winter's starting out, one lousy robin's not going to get it done. (laughs) I may need a flock of pink flamingos. 
I read, a, I read an online article recently about seasonal affective disorder, and it was giving different tips of how to deal with it. And one caught my attention. It, it was just simply, simply entitled, Flip the Switch. And it was pointing out the fact that there's still a lot of light around. Get out in it. Take advantage of it. Light therapy. Walk in the light. It's all around us. Good advice. Sometimes it's easy to think that we live in a Narnia-like world ruled by the white witch where it's always winter and never Christmas. But Mark, Mark has good news. The king has landed. Aslan is on the move. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord rises upon you. Fiat lux, let there be light. Let's pray. Thank you, God, for sending your light into our world. Help us to take advantage of that light and to walk in the day as we walk in fellowship with Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, in whose name we pray these things. Amen.